Welcome to this Columbia University Comunitas Public Management Podcast. Today we'll be featuring a master class by Columbia professor Yumi Shumabukuru on global public policy and innovation. Professor Shumabukuru holds degrees from Columbia and MIT and received a postdoctorate fellowship from Harvard University. She is the acting director of SEPA's Urban Social Policy Concentration, and her forthcoming book is Building an Inegalitarian Welfare State, the Impact of Dualistic Coordinated Capitalism and Elite-Made Democracy in Japan. She'll be talking today on global cases of social policy innovation from around the world. Let's go into this very new field uh, called the social welfare innovation field. Some people call it social entrepreneurship, social impact. I'm thinking, you know, also in Brazil, it's probably getting big and big. Uh, when you ask young people, what do you want to be when you grow up? Lately, they're like, I want to do social impact, you know? Like, what social impact? They're like, I don't know, but I want to make an impact, right? Uh, so that's a great field, uh, and I hope um, today's, um, this latter part of the presentation gives a little bit more hope into this uh, very um, important yet under um, attended area. So social policy innovation, the first is we have to look at social welfare innovation from the definition point of view. And they vary, okay? Um, just look at this. Uh, some scholars say that social innovation is new ideas that address social needs and something that actually works. Uh, some people like Stanford, uh, business school scholars, they argue Social innovation is a novel solution. So it's a new solution to a social problem that is more effective, efficient, sustainable, or just than current solutions. It's a little vague there. Some say that social innovation is new social processes, outputs, outcomes that are durable, they're broad in impact. OECD defines it as social market failures in the provision of critical public goods. What can you tell from these definitions? It's all over the place. Uh, it also kind of means that social innovation is very difficult to track down, okay? So the, some of the stuff that I'm going to share with you guys, I think most of them you'll be like, oh, I never heard about it. Maybe it's happening in your neighboring countries and whatnot, but it's difficult to sort of um, track them down and even identify because a lot of social, policy, uh, social innovation takes place in silence, right? They're not saying, me, 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 look at me, I wanna be in Time Magazine, right? The, some of the smaller ones that are doing a lot of work are actually invisible. So it's really important to like, spotlight these things and maybe understand the nature of the intervention. And throughout, we have to be critical, by the way. A lot of people who work in the nonprofit social enterprise field, they're like selling the idea. But as public policymakers, we have to look at it from a critical point of view. Is it really making that much of an impact? What kind of impact is it making? I want to be kind of, you know, critical about it. So that's, a, that's how we're going to roll today. Now, in terms of the social innovation triad, um, I think Bill Emick uh, came here, I think on Monday, talked about public-private partnership and so forth. But this is like the kind of the pyramid it's a great way to sort of look at who are the actors involved in social innovation. Um, government is doing less and less, but they still want to do things. They still intervene, okay? 
And when the government and the private sector get together, we call that PPP, Public Private Partnership. Um, private sector joins with civil society. So these are NGO. They're like social enterprise. Right? They're kind of like in between. And then there are some groups that are like quasi-state. They're maybe an offshoot of a state agency. Um, they have maybe funding from the government, but they're operated by civil society groups. So they're kind of quasi-state. Uh, Nowadays, uh, what I see more and more is a multi-sector collaboration. Like many of them involve like almost all of them, right, in part of it. Maybe the bank is funding, like HSBC, Goldman Sachs, and there's a project that's actually run by civil, different civil society groups. And then you have some intermediately, like quasi-state doing some regulatory thing. And so there's a lot of collaboration now in the social enterprise realm. Now, this triangle is missing one player. Can you guys identify maybe one group that's missing from this innovation? Individuals. Right? So the thing about social innovation that's really important is that these are entrepreneurs. The ideas, the leadership really matters. When you look at each of the, maybe some of the um, innovation that I'm going to uh, sort of um, explore today, oftentimes it started with maybe one people, two people, and then ideas got better, bigger and bigger, and then they started collaborating. So always bear in mind that it may not look like this, but it might look more like this, that it's this way of growing into the social enterprise field. Now, each of the social um, enterprises have, or their projects have different levels of projection. One is they have a proposal, they become a prototype of a design, Hopefully it's sustainable, and in the very end, the winner, social impact, enterprise, everything's scalable. So you can take it to the next level, to the not just the village level, but to the city, then to the country. Maybe that particular social impact model could be exported abroad, like it worked in Colombia, so let's do it in Chile, and let's maybe do it in Botswana. So that's like the scale. So that's kind of ideal way of progression. Now, this is probably the most important chart of today. There are different types of institution, uh, sort of a programs, okay? So when you look at, we'll go over this um, more in detail. Some of the social innovation is very incremental, little by little, right? Mm -hmm. They create certain products and they kind of disseminate it. So this kickstart is uh, in Africa is very sort of time consuming to pump the well and it requires a lot of manpower and women can't do it, children can't do it. And they kind of invented this kind of a foot pump, which was a little bit easier uh, for labor. So irrigation system like that could be part of a new product and services that addresses market failure like water supply. We'll talk about this half-built homes and cola life. How many of you heard those two things, half-built homes and cola life? Perfect. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> okay. Some of the innovations are institutional. Okay. Um, they change the landscape of a particular field. So think about like mobile banking, right? M-Pesa. Um, this is basically saying we don't really need banks. 
the bank, the, you know, it could be mobile, that there's one person who has this kind of a, you know, device, and then you log in the money, and then you say, this is your account. You can log in, you can take out, take out your money from the internet. Um, you know, so there's a lot of um, mobility here. It doesn't sort of, it changes the traditional banking and financing structure. So we call that institutional innovation. The third type, probably the rarest type, are disruptive innovation, okay? It's interesting because innovation, I think maybe some of you have read Joseph Schumpeter's work. Uh, Joseph Schumpeter, he's a great philosopher, who once said that innovation, technology, and whatnot, there's always a creative, destructive component. Okay. It's a process that goes both and both. So think about an innovation in any industry that was created and it may be creating jobs and things like that, but it's also destroying certain things. Think about any technological innovation that has this creative destructive component. I'll start. Automobiles created lots of businesses, automobiles, huge technological innovation, cars, but it destroyed sidewalks. Pedestrian walks, right? Um, what else? Wireless communication. Yeah, wireless communication. Yeah, yeah. And also um, the way we like connect with people more esoterically was being destroyed good. Yeah, what else might show this thing? This kind of a creative destructive dynamic. The, Airbnb, okay, yeah, so the hotel industry, there's something very, probably I would say maybe Airbnb is here. Yeah, Airbnb, um, uh, Uber, uh, a little bit here. The industry itself it might be affected, but it's not as disruptive in terms of like the paradigm shift. Now this one, for example, I put the thing here, it's a paradigm shift in politics. There is an organization called Austin. Who, uh, that argued that human beings' rights is not just education, it's also knowledge. I mean, that's like, what? People have a right to knowledge? Completely disruptive, right? Um, so think, just, just let's get our juices flowing because this kind of a thinking, what is the value that's being created and what is the value that is being destroyed is very important for social innovation in assessing them. So think about financial industry. Great recession, lots of innovation, credit default swaps, mortgage-backed securities, right? All these financial innovation that oh, collateral debt obligation. These are all financial instrument innovation that took place in 2008 and prior. Destroyed wealth, people's lives and everything, right? Uh, what else? Military technology, creation of certain specific instrument could be destructive for human beings' lives and land. Um, so digital India, I think Bill talked to you guys about digital India. We can also analyze it through this mechanism, and we'll go over that. Right? So always think about the value that's being created and destroyed when you think about innovation. OK, so three different types. So let's look at some examples. 
I want to I want to give you guys some hope before you leave. <laughs> no more politics, no more religion. Okay, that part is okay. Working class is dying or being becoming corrupt, but that's okay. Um, okay, so we always start off looking at different projects by first looking at the problem. So in this particular case, um, water shortage. Right, water is the resource that's always scarce in almost any region and in any country. Um, around 650 million people in the world have no access to water. Around 2.3 billion people have limited access to clean water. And half of the primary schools, especially in India and many other societies, don't even have clean water. When they have children who are vulnerable to different diseases. And in most societies, I'm sure in some parts of Latin America, Africa, and also like India and whatnot, it takes two to six hours to get water. It's enormous, almost waste of time. Productive workers just trying to get water. This is a huge problem in countries where the government are non-existent, right? So what do they do? So what do they do? One innovation that appeared, I think, in, uh, in certain cities in India, it's called uh, water ATMs. Okay, so there's a nonprofit uh, that has a multi-sector collaboration with the municipalities, with technology groups. I think HSBC is part of the funding. They basically install these clean water technology tanks all throughout the villages where kids can just go outside of their home, get clean water, and pay for it for cheap. And they have managed over time to supply water with very minimum cost. So they circumvented the whole state. They said, we're not going to wait until the government to create the infrastructure for clean water. Enough is enough. Let's go this way. So just a quick mechanism of this paramount uh, system, it basically um, bought off certain technology to um, actually these, uh, all of these are solar panel uh, powered. So it's actually energy-wise sustainable. And one cup of tea in India is the same as a whole gallon of water. That's how the cost is kept low. And they're clean, and they use the state-of-the-art technology. Uh, they have funders, uh, probably financial services, who donate these you know, money, big funders. And they bought these water purification plants in each village. And they end up sort of having managed by local entrepreneurs, very important, especially in multi-sector setup. And all of these guys are very high tech. The amount of supply of water, the quality, they're all operated by data, okay, backed by data. And so it can be done remotely. You know how in the water supply tank thing, there's somebody has to go in and check, right? This is all circumvents that. There's like no people except for the broader sort of, um, sort of a local, uh, local and terminal based um, sort of manager who looks at the data and whatnot. And uh, there is one truck usually that sort of delivers water uh, to each particular segment. And, it gets distributed. So I have not heard anything bad about this system. Um, you know, usually water supply stuff, if it's privatized and whatnot, they question the quality of water and whatnot. But um, in this particular case, it seems like to me a winner. I don't know about what you guys think, um, but um, this is the first one I show you because I think there's not much to say aside from the fact that, wow, seems like a good idea. It's a very new um, technology, so we'll see how it goes. I think right now there are like 300,000 customers of this uh, water ATMs, uh, around 570 installed, which means that it's not scaled yet. 
right? Uh, only, I think, 12 municipalities and so forth. So we'll see how this goes. Maybe in Brazil, some par certain parts, this kind of a thing might be importable. Um, second problem, big one, poverty ghetto tax, OK? So, <laughs> so poverty ghetto tax, what is it about? Um, it's not really a tax, <laughs> so sorry. I, I don't. I don't mean to um, kind of put you, um, kind of deflate your excitement. But it's not really a tax. Um, have you ever noticed that um, if you buy in bulk, you save more money, right? If you buy a whole sack of potato, like per pound, per pound is only 0 0.99 per pound. But if you buy one potato. It's like one point, I mean, it's like 80 cents per potato. So bulk buying is cheaper than individually buying it. So poor people kind of have this thing called the ghetto tax or poverty tax because they don't have the money to buy in bulk. Even if they have five children and they need five, you know, like 50 potatoes or something, they might be buying less and they have to pay higher price. What else might also increase the, the price of poor people? Food, especially, and services, or any services, actually. So this is not just for food, this poverty tax. Uh, think about poor people without telephone, like cell phones. What do they have to do? They have to pay expensive telephone cards, right? As you see this, as, as especially with the Mexican population in the United States, they have to go to a phone booth, kind of borrow it. You know, each card might cost $20, and they're spending this every week to talk to their mama and papa. Uh, think about financial services. Poor people have enormous amount of social financial services tax, right? Um, think about pawn shops. They get gypped. Right? Pawn shops are terrible. But if poor people want to get loans, something of value, let's say a $1,000 ring, they have to pawn it off for like $50. You know, this is a horrible deal for the poor. Um, other things like, let me think about other things. Is there other example of like poverty tax? Because they're poor, they might not be able to benefit from certain discounts. Oh, very important. <laughs> what the, you know, where are most of the poor people in? Rural areas, right? Have you noticed in rural areas, the, the shops themselves are these tiny little shops? And you look at the shelf, and there are only like five things in each shop. Guess what? That shop, because they're not bulk buying, they're paying a higher price. So what happens to the price of shampoo? They don't benefit from scale at all. So if you're poor living in poor rural areas, everything is expensive. So some of my Chilean students discovered this really cool innovation. It's called the algramo. And <laughs> algramo, um, I think it's by grams, like uh, maybe, um, you know, like grams, like, um, yeah, yeah grams, yeah. Um, these two individuals, Jose Manuel Molar and Salvador um, Achondo, said that this poverty tax, we got to do something about it in Chile, right? especially in rural Chile where they were poor. And they created this uh, social enterprise called Gramo where they buy in bulk. 
and they have this dispending machine, right? So there's no store. There's only these, like, basically a vending machine where the poor get to benefit from the scale that these guys have created, essentially. Right? So when you um, look at the sort of the distribution and where the cost might add up, in it, when, the, when you go to like a smaller shop, local stores, you have the supplier and they end up packaging the goods and they're marketing the goods. And then the distributor one and distributor two sort of, sort of align up and finally gets the local store. Now, within these processes, the value is added each time. There's an additional cost, right? Like marketing and things like that. So the final price that the local store pays is really high. Now, Algramo says, well, we're getting rid of all these things, right? We're buying directly from the supplier. Very simple idea. We're buying directly in bulk from the supplier. And we're just going to install these vending machines in local stores. And the benefit of it is actually minus 40% of actual goods like beans, you know, um, shampoo, like things that are not perishable, that doesn't spoil, and you can put it in vending machine you can get a discount of 40%, and that will really benefit the poor. So um, they ended up sort of um, doing a lot of um, studies here on the positive and the negative, um, you know, generally a positive effects on this. Um, any sort of thing that you might worry about this? I think with this particular one, the limitation might be, like I said, it depends on, you know, like a, there's a, there's a limit on what kind of goods could actually be in a vending machine to begin with. Um, but they have done quite well, actually. Um, it started off, oh, I don't have it here, but it started off in Chile uh, with, um, you know, affecting 76,000 people. And when you look at, like, their map and how much they have grown, I think it's now in Colombia as well, this Algramo. Um, so you never know in Brazil. One day you might see Algramo you know, beans, vending machine and whatnot. Um, it's an interesting idea, yeah. The actual vending machine is, um, I think initially they were just for free, like putting it there and having the vent, um, maybe they're getting the cuts from it. I think it depends on the, the scale. Because before they were like in charge of one machine, one store. And I think it's expanded over time. So that's something that, um, I have to kind of look into, yeah, because that's a big implication, right? Whether the yeah. store has it, a risk or not of having it. Yeah, very interesting dynamic too. Social entrepreneurs are obsessed about transparency, but when it comes to about their own operation, things could be a little bit murky. <laughs> okay, so leasing or not, yeah. Great question. But somehow I feel like this, this could be um, transportable in other setup. Uh, and at least that's the way they say, yeah. Any other questions? No? Okay, good one. Um, so let's move on to another one, which is probably more eye-opening for you guys, because it's, um, it, it hits with something that's very um, serious, especially in developing countries. Uh, think about like the jungles, uh, more of the northern part of Brazil, where it's very difficult for um, any goods like medical supplies to uh, get in. Um, the, this one, the third one example, the problem is child mortality and diarrhea. Okay, um, kids are really tiny, and when they have diarrhea, they lose a lot of water and sometimes blood, and they die quickly when dehydration takes place. 
And um, over 1 million children die uh, from diarrhea-related death each year. And when you look at tally the world, like, you know, um, how, much how many children have died over the years, it's staggering. It's almost like hundreds of millions of people, children die uh, over the course of like 20, 30 years. So diarrhea and child uh, death mortality in developing world is very serious. Um, and when you look at child mortality um, in Africa, especially uh, in the kind of the center part, um, it's very um, high and it's also oftentimes related to diarrhea because they don't have clean water, right? Only sanitation is not there. So what is the solution for these almost like failed states? These are countries that have no growth, no sort of organizational capacity from the government. How do you deal with this? Right? So there's one social entrepreneur who said, wait a minute, wait a minute, maybe I can do something about it. Right? Um, church groups, they don't tend to go into medicine stuff in the developing world for some reason. I think because there's not enough um, missionaries who have doctors sort of the capacity to get in there. And the problem is widespread. It's all over. Right? So what is, what is the solution? that this one particular man, I think he's a British man, sort of came up with. He noticed that in countries, um, whether it be Botswana or Burundi and whatnot, he noticed that every remote area, one of the problems is that you can't get medication. Very simple, right? It's so remote that there's no transportation system. The mother wants to give the children medication, but they can't have access to it. But even in these remote areas where there is nothing, absolutely nothing, he realized a pattern. He said, in the middle of nowhere, there's this. This happens also in Brazil and Colombia, everywhere. Like in the middle of nowhere, it's like, oh, it's Coca-Cola, right? So there's something about the distribution here system, right? There's some networks of Coca-Cola all over the world that maybe he could use to transport medication, life-threatening life-threatening diseases like um, diarrhea. So such an interesting innovation because it's such a simple idea. It's brilliant, right? Um, and it has something to do with innovation and packaging and distribution rather than some um, other sort of fancy things. And over time, he, there was like a different prototypes, you know, what's the maximum uh, way to sort of um, increase the amount of medication per crate. So he, he, this man is amazing. He's like a one man show. By the way, um, he has won like 50 awards, okay? It's called Cola Life, Taste the Process, maybe. He doesn't say that, but I was like, Taste the Process. It's great. Um, but there was some unintended consequences. And maybe that's one of the lessons with um, that's one of the lessons of uh, cola life. What might be an interesting like maybe you guys could think about this. This guy did not foresee this. Okay, so he was like, "Oh my God, brilliant idea!" And initially, it was working. Like Coca Cola agreed, we can do this. They even helped him with the packaging, right? Like these children are dying and we need to do something about it. And there are like five or six prototypes and they were trying so hard to put it fit into the Coca-Cola crate. But after many years of working and after many years of receiving so many awards, 
unexpected thing happen. Unintended. <laughs> no, he died. No, just kidding. No. <laughs> Very unexpected thing happened. This man is trying to scale it up, right? He's like, I want to scale this thing, not just in this part of Africa, but other parts of Africa. And he's like figuring out how to scale this. Any guess? No, okay. Something unexpected happened. Yeah? Anything? Yeah? <laughs> That's interesting. Um, it didn't happen. That's okay. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay in Africa. Uh, the obesity is not an issue. It's okay. Um, in this particular case, what's very interesting is that it was called Cola Life, amazing thing. But over the years, he found out as he scaled up more that the actual, you know, the distributor, I mean, the, the one who's transporting, remember, remember. In developing in developed countries, who are the what kind of a vehicle is used to transport your Coca-Cola? Huge trucks. These truck these crates make sense for trucks, but what about in Africa, remote areas? Bicycle, bicycle, and with these small shops, right? Tiny, tiny shop. It's the bicycle man who's bicycling for hours and days to get to that. They said this crate is too heavy. They don't like the shape of it because it's like, if you put that in the back, that's it. That's Coke only. They might prefer to put in crate like beans and rice or something more important. And in between, they put a couple of Coca-Cola bottles. Then at this point, this packaging no longer makes sense. So he was like, damn, right? So I'm reading all these reports by him, and I'm like, oh, no, that's sad. I feel so bad for you. But these social entrepreneurs, they don't give up. So what he did now is that instead of like packaging it this way, like do you see how big this is? Yeah. Now the prototype is tiny. It's so small. So it's now friendlier for the for the for the cyclists. They can like pack it, you know? But interestingly enough, what happens then? No longer no longer this cola. It's just a diarrhea medication small package that's being sold. So Coca-Cola has sort of become a uh, you know, it's a sideshow. It's just to hook you guys in the beginning. <laughs> like I wear the way I did, right? Cola live, and then I'm like, okay, sorry, guys. <laughs> uh, you, you come up and you come down. So I'm, but it's really remarkable. Now he's able to scale it though, by small, by making the package smaller and smaller. That's a good point. Yeah. is budgeting, amazing innovation took place in Brazil first. Now you guys are in charge of this inclusive capitalism stuff. Like, I'm not joking about it. Like, it's going to be amazing to see what you guys figure out, you know, and your agenda. Because I think this is something that you probably cannot learn from outside, you know, because the problems are unique to your municipalities and the private sector that you're dealing with. The dynamics is different, you know. So love to see some cases or something like that emerging. Okay, <laughs> I'm getting inspired by you guys right now. So this is great stuff. Yeah, so let's keep thinking about these things. So Cola Life, interesting sort of unintended consequences example. Um, so let's look at India, right? This is like the, the next example. Let's see what time we have. Okay, we have some time. Um, do you guys remember the digital India stuff? Yeah, for public publishing. Yeah, that one is really um, targeted. Probably Professor Emick said something like digital India is about getting your identity, 
like your ID cards, but it has huge social welfare um, implication, and it's actually used for cash transfers. Right? So the problem in India is that it's still a very poor country, especially in rural areas. Poverty is very high. They only pay, shockingly, uh, less than five percent of Indian working population pay taxes. So remember, no taxes, no social welfare. Right? There's nothing to do with you. So poverty is a problem. There's no financing in the rural areas. So digital India has a huge social. It's sort of seen as a social innovation. Okay, uh, let's. So, did he talk about the propane gas? It's like uh, maybe he didn't. So one of the, the offshoot of digital India that really benefits the poor, especially, is that now uh, because they can figure out who's getting what, right? Especially now we can actually target women to receive these social services. Um, now there are some uh, subsidies of propane, right? Um, just giving them to the poor people. Uh, there may be some. Uh, there are also some cash transfers, just like Bolsa Familia, that's taking place in India based on your uh, fingerprints, so that the officials are not going to uh, steal the money or goods. So that's a pretty big stuff. What might be other ways to use this digital India to improve social policy or social welfare of the people? Yeah, right, bank account, this. Rural areas, the poor, they don't have capital, there's no bank, they can't borrow money, so they can't open their business. So that's one implication. So rural poverty, maybe new forms of financing can take place, and it has. There is a lot more e-mobile banking and stuff like that in India right now because of this digital technology. We can track, keep track on who's whose money is what, the savings, and they can borrow from that. What might be other things? Telemedicine. Telemedicine, interesting. Yeah, it could be um, sort of uh, to keep patient information, right? They all may have the same name, like Raj, you know, or what's the in common Indian last name? Sim. Huh, Sim? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They all may be Raj Sims, but they have different fingertips. Excellent, right? So there is a connection between one social innovation than the other. It's a very, like, multi-institutional change in innovation. Yeah, what might be other things? Think about voting. I said to you in the very beginning that in a way social welfare is best if it's supplied by the government with big funding, but democracy is not working. But imagine if voting is done by digital fingerprints and it encourages you to more and more. Um, remember, most huge chunk of population in India live in slums. They're kind of unaccounted for, but by giving them identity, they may become voters, okay? They may have some voice. Um, better information, right? Well, maybe this particular municipality is having certain, um, maybe their average nutritional rate is low because they're not getting enough food subsidy. And we can all see this from the digitization, right? So the data, big data collection is also part of this. So lots of innovation um, kind of spurring. There's a lot of positive externality with digital India. Um, so that's something to consider. Now, when you look at innovation, there's always this issue. Who's included? Who's excluded? Who's excluded from this? So maybe this is one negative side of digital India. Who's in excluded in this particular setup? 
okay, which is which are probably like the homeless. Uh, homeless have no identity. They don't have homes, and they're kind of wandering around. So um, I think in India, they're almost like the, the population of New York City. That's how many, how much, how many homeless people are there. So that's a huge population. Uh, so that's something to think about. Who are also the losers of digital India at the margin? Men, government officials who wanted to extract money from the state. Men are also somewhat of a loser in this because in the past, um, when the Indian government used to give subsidies by sort of services or by goods, the men took it. And apparently studies show that they sold it and they did what? Went for prostitution, drinking, or gambling. So when men receive these money, they actually don't spend on their children. I think similar story with conditional cash transfer in Latin America. So in India, digital India, sort of at the margin, it empowers women, but it may actually disempower men. Something to um, definitely an angle to think about. So let's end today with one of the most exciting revolution called the half-built homes. Okay, um, why is this such a big deal? Think about housing inequality. Think about how huge the problem is. Um, global, globally, there are like so many slums, right? So big that actually 863 million people in the world live in slums, okay? Um, this kind of condition, right? Favela is a slum. Um, there's lots and lots of them. They have poor sanitation. Uh, children, adults are vulnerable to disasters in slums. Uh, there's huge pollution problems in slums. I mean, that's from Southeast Asian countries. Africa, so many slums around the world. There is overcrowding and infrastructure problem. You know, one home is built on top of another. When I was watching favelas, I was intrigued. They were the homes are like, you know, um, built on top of another like mushrooms, and you have to worry, is it sustainable? Like architecturally, what happens if there is natural disasters? Um, uh, in some parts cases, um, you know, like. Um, in Southeast Asia, you have like earthquakes and typhoons. How are there, how are these um, buildings that are not regulated? Are they safe or whatnot? So, some's a big problem, and it's only getting worse. Okay, according to the estimate, this 863 million people living in slum, it's going to go up to three billion people by 2013. Right, that is a big problem. It is a uh, massive, and in order to meet this demand. A study showed that you have to actually construct 96,000 homes per day, and that is not happening, especially in housing, where the government has to put in a lot of money, and because of neoliberalism and you're doing less and less, this is like an issue. This is like a ticking time bomb. Okay, um, so home ownership is like the source of inequality, and that's the reason why Piketty, Thomas Piketty, and other people really highlight that housing inequality is really like something that is super important for why we see this growing inequality today. And this is, um, in India's case, this is the richest people's tower, and then within that you have these slums. Uh, in the India case, you see this inequality of land, uh, home ownership really affecting today's inequality, where a home in 1947 that was worth $3,000, uh, 60 years later on, it's around $5.3 million in value. Okay, So if you own something, great. If you never own something, 
you're messed up, okay? And that's majority of the people, okay? So valuation at home, really important. So what's the innovation here? That's probably the most exciting. Now, before we go into that, I wanna actually show you the magnitude of this and how it's important for also economic growth, okay? So poverty has this cycle, and I think most of you know, so I'm just gonna go very quickly. If you're poor, you live in a slum, informal housing, and you may end up becoming an informal laborer. Duh, right? There's networks that are informal. And then when you have that, you have very dangerous, poor existing homes. You can't really sell them. They're kind of like bad depreciating assets. In fact, if you live in a slum, your home, what you think is your home, is a liability. So we have to break this cycle of poverty that's sort of taking place with the slum. So not only is living in a slum, informal settlement, really a generator of inequality, it's also something that really ties in poverty. Chile was no different. Um, housing policy, there was a lot of deficit of homes. Uh, and in the 1960s, 1973, there were lots of slums uh, in Chile. And what they did was that when the socialist government took over, they basically gave people a piece of chalk and they said, just draw a line there, that's yours, this is yours. And they sort of had this chalk movement where they had people say, let's not live in slums, you get to have your own homes and just plot something. Well, they ended up doing that, but the problem was that they ended up sort of building stuff on top of each other over the time. So the slum thing kind of evolved naturally. Um, despite the government's effort. Um, starting from past Pinochet and whatnot, you start seeing cash subsidies and units. So if you buy something, you might get subsidies. Uh, if you move out to low-income housing, affordable housing, um, they'll, the government assists you. The problem with this one, though, is that government neoliberalism is taking place in Chile. The government wants to do less and less. Okay. Uh, they don't, yes, there is illegal expansion, there's poor quality of housing, and yes, the poor need to have better housing, but the government wants to do less. So what was the solution? Right. Um, so this organization called Elemental, they call themselves not think tank, but do tank, uh, created this, uh, was created by this um, architect named Alejandro Aravina. Uh, he won for this particular half-built home, he won the Nobel Prize of Architecture, okay? So this is the like innovation, especially in the field of architecture. Uh, and he teamed up with, uh, I think, his colleagues in, in Harvard, a transportation engineer, as well as one postdoc student. And all three of them said, aha, we have a genius idea, right? So on one hand, uh, you want to sort of meet quality and quantity. You don't want to make that into a trade-off. Right? You, and you have to have also good investment that's going to become tradable asset over time. So your home, whatever that you build, is going to be, you know, you, it's going to be a capital. It's not going to be bad capital. And then you're going to get some value out of it by appreciating it. So their idea was very simple. Let's build a half-built home for the poor people. We'll give you the supplies, the mapping, very durable construction, will build half of the home for you, but as you work harder and as you build more capital, you can invest in your whole home and make it a whole home. So it's called a half-built home because it's literally 
a half-built home. Your asset's going to appreciate, and then you're going to use this to maybe borrow money, and then you can get to join the formal economy. So the informality, the poverty cycle gets broken down. Thank you for joining us on this Columbia University Comunitas Public Management Podcast. Please join us for other podcasts here on this website.